Have you ever heard the expression, there's no there there? Well, let's ask the question. Is there there there? That's our podcast from the full-service digital storytelling agency, Graphic Machine. I'm Matt Staub. I'm a partner here at Graphic Machine, here with the other two partners of Graphic Machine, Brian Jones. Hello. And Patience Jones. Hello. This week is episode 56, the Maximizing Synergies edition. So let's create a touch point to make sure we're maximizing our synergies from a business perspective. We've got a short runway and we want to make sure we're optimizing around best practices while staying within our guardrails. So today, let's leverage some long tail impact content and hit our numbers by really making this episode pop. All hands on deck as we peel back the onion and explore the strategy of a seamless, innovative, next-gen, mission-critical enterprise, customer-centric brand right podcast about the language we use in business and in life, whether it is losing its meaning and whether we're getting worse at communicating outside of our own industries. How do we make mindful communication part of our DNA? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) My face hurts from laughing. That is amazing. Did that make sense? Made my head bleed from the inside. I think. But here's I'm actually having an aneurysm right here's now. Here's the problem. So today we're going to talk a little bit about whether these words mean anything. And it's very common for people to make fun of corporate speak. But the problem is, I love words. Some of these words. <laughs> Good words, love you too. <laughs> But like, what word is better at communicating the idea of synergy than synergy? But have we lost synergy? Are we losing the language? When you use the word synergy to really mean synergy, then that's the right word to use. When you use it, and I don't mean you, you personally, when one uses it as just kind of a synonym for all other kinds of things like meeting, goal, plan, it's just like an it's, ambiguous Yeah, goal. it's like, I don't want to say the word that I should be saying because I don't think it sounds expert I, enough. I think we have to take so, a break from them. I think they have lost their meaning. Do you think it's, to PJ's point, it's because we've bastardized them and we've just applied them as cover for our own inability to communicate or just to fill the space with some words that don't mean anything? It's my point, so clearly I think it's the, that's, <laughs> yes. But it is a combination, I think, of trying to cover up things and convey knowledge. It's also a desire to meet what the perceived expectations are. Mm. You may know that that's not the exact right word you want to use, or you may know that it's overused, but you use it anyway because you assume the person that you're communicating with expects to hear that word. And if they don't hear that word, a marketing person who didn't talk about synergies, like... I feel like I can't, though, because now I'm a cliche and I want to use that word when it's the most appropriate Appropriate, word. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of desire to feel confident. And those words sometimes provide that confidence for people that might not otherwise feel that way. Any more people have the sort of ick factor related to those words because of their overuse. And so you really do run the risk when you use them that maybe you get lumped in with a crowd of people that you really don't want to be lumped into. It might be important to use more straightforward turns of phrase in that regard so that people don't feel that way. And I understand your point, Matt, about sometimes it's the most appropriate word to use in that regard. Maybe it's time to rethink that a little bit. That was something that they really hammered into us in law school writing classes. They would show us these opinions. Sometimes they were Supreme Court opinions where they would illustrate what they called the sin of prolixity. And they would show you how someone could go on for four pages to make one point that had become this ideal of how we communicate. But you can and should say the same thing in a much clearer, much more direct way because you're risking 
the audience not understanding you. And if you make your four-page point, maybe it's very lofty and maybe it would look great in a case book, but the judge reading it may not understand it. And similarly, here, your client may not understand it. Your buyer may not understand it. So this is a tactic though, right? Don't you think in an industry, there are languages and means by which industries sort of coalesce around each other and build their little insider clicks, I guess, in the way that they communicate with each other. So business has all this language, but also law is a good example. And if you ever sit around two doctors talking, mm-hmm. there's intentional reasons why their language is opaque and very difficult. It's not accessible for a reason. But does getting too much inside this sort of internal dialect of an industry hamper our ability to talk with other people, like be just humans and talk outside of our industry? I think it definitely does. If you're an internal marketer at a company, let's say like an architecture and engineering firm, you've done a deep dive into the space of that. Did you just say deep dive? Yes, I did. I think that's a buzzword. It is. That did that on purpose. <laughs> well played. <laughs> if you do that, you come out with the language of architects and engineers, but it may not be the language of your clients who you're trying to attract. Similarly, if you're a marketer and you're speaking in the language of marketing, you may not be attracting the people that are in the greatest need of your services. You may be attracting other marketers. Even in an internal industry setting, there is sometimes the danger that what one word means to you has enough differences and variances with what it means to someone else in your same industry that even though you think you're saying the same thing or you think you're on the same page, you're really not. And the shorthand of, for lack of a better word, that jargon makes it so that people are not as inclined to really push and say, what do you mean by, for example, synergies? We don't want to ask those questions because, well, it's an industry term and I'm in the industry and you're in the industry and I'll look like I don't know what's going on. But that internal confusion often leads to external confusion and bad product. Well, and it goes to the edges too, right? So if you're presenting to maybe business owners and you're talking about sort of mainstream marketing ideas and you assume maybe that they should know them. So maybe you use a little bit of shorthand or jargon or when you're using abbreviations and you don't want to spell them out all the time if you think you have a qualified audience because if you're just speaking within your industry, you expect them to know. And if you spell them out, it can be kind of insulting to their intelligence, but then people don't ask and you don't always know. It's really kind of a tricky layer to decide what kind of language to use and what setting it's. You really have to be conscious of it. It is a really fine line and it's really dependent upon who you're speaking to and you kind of have to gauge your audience. I think there comes a point where you can't be saying there's this thing called advertising. But I do think that for other types of things, you could say, I'm sure everybody knows what this is, but this acronym stands for blah, blah, blah. Because especially in professional audiences, nobody wants to be the person to raise their hand. And it always cracks me up when people say, now, is everyone familiar with this term? Who is going to raise their hand and go, oh, well, I'm not. Right, exactly. You know? No, I'm the idiot. Right, exactly. exactly. Especially within your own industry. Please slow this down for me. So you should just kind of accommodate that. Assume somebody's raised their hand. Assume you have to just do a brief explanation. It takes two seconds. I feel like the law and the way that legal documents often are structured is a great model for that because you identify the parties in the first part of the legal proceeding and then you abbreviate them. Thereafter, they're referred to by that abbreviation. So there mm-hmm. was always a context up front to provide people with the means to understand where the words came from. Yeah. So the first time you say 
PPC, you say pay-per-click, mm-hmm. hitherto re- referred to as PPC. I think you should use that exact phrase. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or you just use PPC in quote marks. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like there's a real good synergy between those two. Uh, there is. We're four. So we need more synergies. And, so, and such. For synergy's sake. <laughs> okay, so industries that are speaking to mostly themselves and within their own circles, are they necessarily going down a road where they're atrophying their outside communication skills? And do they just need our help? Is that just making a greater case for professional communicators that can try to use empathy and mindful communication? It's really important to recognize who your audience is. And it's okay to use that language as shorthand because sometimes it can be just nice. Sort of like when you've traveled abroad and you haven't spoken your first language for a while and you come back and it's sort of, I can relax a little bit because I'm not translating everything in my head. If you're in an audience, register who you're speaking to and then tailor accordingly. Any kind of closed network network is going to cause one to atrophy. Whether it's you only are communicating with people in your same industry or in your same office or in your same geographical region, you don't have to work as hard to communicate. You take a lot of things on assumption. And the pitfall of that is that you carry those assumptions over when you do move outside of your circle. And those assumptions can lead to disaster. Whatever your industry, whoever your audience is, you have to keep a somewhat open network, which is how they talked about Steve Jobs. Not exactly a social circle, but just that he didn't really have a click. He had lots of people that he communicated with, lots of different industries, lots of different areas. It helps if nobody likes you. (laughs) Well, that's a different topic. That helps you refine your own communication style and it also helps you learn about what motivates other people outside of your immediate group it teaches you to be empathetic and this is something we have to deal with as professional communicators all the time considering the audience how to communicate and i think one of the interesting things for me is our business is really different and so explaining to old school mindsets like what do we do well it's sort of virtual and we build things on the internet and we tell stories it's really interesting to think about like explaining that to your grandmother and actually explaining our business when you're talking and meeting people out in the community in different ways. And you think about all the different ways you talk about it, depending on the audience and you empathize with the audience. I was reading something this morning. It's a book by, as listeners know, my favorite author, Alain de Baton, and it's called The News, A User's Guide. In this particular part, he's talking about how it's not enough to make people aware of the information. You have to make it relevant to them. And I think the same is true in that example. You have to speak to them about what you do in terms that resonate with them. And the most universal terms are things that relate to the human condition. So not to get too deep on it, but... Too late. You know, what we do is not, we program in this code, we tell stories. You know, we tell who you are. I think you can learn a lot by asking questions too. What is your level of interest in this? Do you want to know, we just tell stories? Are you interested in the rest of this. It just takes really strong empathy skills to understand. And I think that's great when public speakers do that too. Who's familiar with this platform or who is interested in this and who's a professional marketer and who's a gardener or whatever. And then you can sort of tailor appropriately. Don't you think there's a lot in the way that technology works now though that is clues about what we miss in our person-to-person communication? So much about data that is out there gathers information and provides these hooks into us that create that resonance, that create that relevance. 
we've gone beyond what a person-to-person communication can be and pulling out those things that we might immediately be looking for. And it's kind of interesting that that's already been accomplished in a lot of ways in digital communications. And the best questions that get you accurate information about somebody's comfort level with your industry is to not ask them direct questions about your industry. Ask them questions about other things. And from that, you can glean okay, they're really tech savvy or they're super old school or they had a bad experience with this or they don't like being in the public eye. And then you learn something about those people too, which is fun. And you can do real life A-B testing kind of to your point. For those of you that are not professional marketers, A-B testing is when you try different (laughs) alternatives and you see which one works better. But actually, that's a huge part of digital marketing is seeing which language works better, which colors, everything down to any variant. You can see which of these two variants is performing better. You can also think about your life that way. And when I explain things like that, it doesn't seem to resonate with this type of person. And sometimes it Mm -hmm. does. Exactly. All right. Well, I think it's time to close the loop on that section of the show. That's also (laughs) a buzzword. I kind of used all of the one I could think of. I don't know. Do you have any, you guys (laughs) want to throw out? spinning. You must be exhausted. (laughs) I know. It's just from a buzzword perspective. Oh, circle back. Circle back is a good one. Did I? I think I might have gotten that beginning. Circle back. Okay. Another one is always from the whatever perspective this is, you know, from the podcast perspective, we're moving on to the next segment of the show, which is the out there's and their there's out there's are things we found on the internet or you guys shared with us that we thought were cool that we will share with you right now. And their (laughs) there's are things that didn't go so exceptionally well that we will hopefully send condolences and constructive criticism back to. Let's start this week with Brian Jones, innovator. Interesting thing. I don't know if this is an out there, 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 but we'll decide. They have discovered that the Chinese who are becoming larger segment of iPhone users do not use the iPhone in the traditional way that you see in most of the rest of the world. That many of them do not use the home button that is on the bottom of the screen. So basically, they turn on the accessibility features. So all these features that you use the home button to do, you get through on screen through this additional accessibility. And these are not people that have any sort of disability that would require them to use this or that would make that on purpose. The conundrum of the people that have done some research on this is that people have a view of the iPhone as being a premium product and they are concerned that the home button will break. So therefore, they don't use the button because they want to elongate the life of the device. What I find really interesting about this in terms of language, that design is also a language. And even when you design something, be it a product or a experience or whatever it happens to be, people bring things to the table too. It's an example of that where culture is also part of the equation and sometimes produces unpredictable results. I have not seen anything that said that the home buttons are particularly susceptible to overuse. Is that... There wasn't really great evidence on this, but it was really my suspicion is that somebody's phone broke once and that uh, got passed who knows? down. You know, it could be a cultural... Yeah. Exactly. But it's... I do like the irony of it's a luxury product, but this part of it we think is really probably pretty janky. Well, I so think don't break it. That it's probably... There is some dissonance in that design. Everything you do is this soft digital touch and this is a button that you push over and over again. And I, mm. I kind of get that. It's, it is old school and you interpret the product in certain ways, then this button really seems fragile and old school and, you know, anachronistic and all these synonyms that I'm saying. (laughs) All those things apply. Four pages. um, The provocative question I want to ask, and there's no right answer, but 
are they using it wrong? They're using it contrary to the design, but they've re-engineered it. But that's, I guess, my point. What's so fascinating about it, it's not like a rootkit where you hack mm-hmm. your phone and you created a new use and that wasn't necessarily an intended design. It's a testament to how well designed the product is, that there are multiple right ways for it to be used and that the experience is different, but it's still equal. As a designer, you see it in one way and you see use in one way and finding out that there's this broad swath of people that use it in a completely different way is really cool. Though that's kind of divergent from the Apple paradigm though, right? They've designed something you didn't even know you wanted in an elegant way to approach it and now people are sort of reverse engineering it. They provide it as the accessibility version of things. It's more that it is a alternate version of the same thing and they did prepare for it. But it's fascinating that the alternate in this particular case is the one that people prefer. Right. Mm-hmm. I wonder if how many people at Apple working on the accessibility team that were presumably those are for people with mobility maybe, impairments. Maybe or it's uh, that guy's up for a raise and <laughs> exactly. he's like, look, I'm really valuable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of cool though. I mean, maybe long term they would just adopt that as the standard. It's kind of neat to think about that not being associated only with people with disabilities. So now if you have a disability, you don't have to do this workaround. It's just the norm. It's sort of our first case of digital evolution that we are witnessing, or at least a well-documented one. To think about these things that were outliers now become the norm. Maybe this will become the next norm of iOS, probably not 9, but 10. The home button is so fundamental to the iPhone experience and always has been. So it's really interesting to see people using it contrary to its intent, you know, essentially. It's hard to imagine products that are basically been hacked, but digital is where it happens always. Mm -hmm. Cool. PJ, what is your out there or there there today? Mine goes back to the book that I mentioned earlier that I'm reading this morning, The News, A User's Guide. In it, the author references something called The Dictionary of Received Ideas. This is a book that was put together somewhere between 1911 and 1913. It was compiled from notes left by uh, French writer Gustave Flaubert in the 1870s. What Flaubert wanted to do was lampoon the idea that in the news, they just give you these ways that you're supposed to think about things. Like if they use the word budget, you assume, oh, budget doesn't work. It's the words and the associated cliches. And so he called it the Dictionary of Received Ideas or Given Ideas because his perception is you read these things and you just take them as true. You're just receiving information. You're not processing. You're not doing any sort of analysis yourself. And presumably it's sort of unconscious when you make these associations, right? Right. And that it breeds laziness. That it's, I just take whatever I see in the paper. And what is so great about this is that the words that he chose and the meanings that he chose are the same today as they were in the 1870s. You still have budget and politics and leader and education, and we'll put a link to it on the website. It's other name, not its actual name, but it is also referred to sometimes as the Dictionary of Human Stupidity. Wow. That's my received ideas. I just love that. So is the title actually descriptive of the content of the book? Is it actually about a guide to consuming news or understanding? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about consuming news, how news is created, motivations behind news, how we could change the news to make better people in society, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. 
there's another podcast that's amazing besides this one and it's called on the media it's from wnyc and it's basically like a media criticism podcast but one of the things that your topic reminds me of is they published a breaking news consumer's guide so basically when everyone's trying to get the scoop and get out there how do you properly consume this information and have the right level of skepticism and understand all the biases and it's actually a really great resource for anyone that lives in the real-time generation so it might be a nice compliment if you have a weekend of reading about news consumption (laughs) from historical and hyper modern perspectives that sounds dreamy yeah block out your weekend (laughs) all right well mine is i guess an out there and it's something that i'm trying to decide whether it's a big deal or not and you guys can tell me if you think it is Right now, it's pretty straightforward. Facebook announced a native article feature. So traditionally, you like the New York Times, you see an article that's posted there, you get a little snippet that the metadata is pulled in and you see kind of a preview image in the first paragraph, maybe you click out and it takes about eight seconds per Facebook's averages to load up the page and experience that article on New York Times' website. What Facebook has done to make that faster and more consistent is to actually bring those articles into the Facebook platform. So you actually aren't leaving Facebook when you are consuming that New York Times article. And New York Times is going to be one of the launch partners for this feature. Publishers will still have control over the look and feel and the placement of advertising, presumably so they can still actually monetize this content and create it. But it will now live on Facebook and will have sort of a paradigm of navigation and interactivity that will actually be nice for users, but will, I fear standardize the types of innovation we see for mobile users. You see different sites doing different things around how they want to present the content. And Facebook's now sort of defining that for content creators in terms of using this functionality. I think it's great from a usability perspective on the surface, but I do wonder what it means for the future of the web and this open rich ecosystem when more and more gets piled into Facebook. So what do you think? Good, bad? A follow-up question. Yes. New York Times, that's all subscription, right? You could get like 10 articles or something a month before I have to pay. So how does this work with that? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if they presumably do the same tracking. Okay. And it's probably tied natively since I don't know how much access those publishers have to your Facebook profile data. Typically, you know, when you Uh, link out, you have to reauthorize. But if it's native, if that is in the ecosystem, so they can track usages around that sort of thing, if that makes facebook's ad platform all that more ubiquitous they say we'll fill in your unused inventory for you if you Uh, if you need to you can sell our ads so obviously it's an upside for them a few things one i'll reveal my own hack for facebook which i've been using for probably the better part of a year now i spent a day unfollowing pretty much everyone i have a bunch of friends still, but the vast majority I don't follow posts. And what I did instead was using it as a content aggregation platform for myself. So what it is for me is a interesting news feed that often has better visuals than you get from pretty much any other platform. It serves the need of getting news content, but in a way that has better and richer media inside the post. So it's interesting that they're going down this path because it's actually one that I already like. I'm betting that what they will do for the paywall, they probably will post a handful of articles and then drive you to connect directly to their site for the richer and more fulfilled experience. So it'll just be another intermediate layer, but you can consume the content. I'm fascinated by this because I wonder what the benefit is to the publications that are publishing through Facebook. And I also wonder what happens when the publication wants to or should run a story that's critical of Facebook. 
I mean, it's basically just a the feed? platform, so they can they presumably can put anything they want on it. And I assume that the benefit is it'll just be faster and more native and consistent experience. I mean, I think they tried this with paper a while ago, yeah. and paper didn't take off because it was a separate app and people didn't really want that experience. They wanted everything to be inside Facebook. I think what we're seeing is the beginning of Facebook tearing down its walls a little bit. And I think what we'll see maybe in the next year is more of Facebook being allowed outside of its app. Ironically, it is inside their app and it's just giving them a little playground container to put it in. Paper was really interesting and that's what I thought of when you talked about it because paper really was just reimagining the news feed and this is reimagining the way you actually consume the content once you click through, which is kind of taking it to the next step and maybe the two together could be a dream marriage. I don't think they've gotten there yet, but I think this is an interesting step. Well, it'll be really fun to watch as all technology news is. I will be very interested to see what this means for content producers if it ends up being good for them and if it ends up being a boon to Facebook and if it ends up destroying all content ever. It probably will. Except for this podcast because we're not going to post it on Facebook. We're just going to keep sending it to you the same way you already get it. That was episode 56, the Maximizing Synergies edition. For all the stuff we talked about on the show today, you can circle back and ping us at graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. That's our show page. You can also set your goals for Twitter at Graphic Machine for the Agency. That doesn't even make sense. At Graphic Machine is the agency. At their podcast is the show. Email us with your ideas, suggestions, thoughts, criticisms at ITTT at graphicmachine.com. And of course, you can check out our Facebook thread for every show. That's at facebook.com slash graphicmachineinc. That's where you can come and talk about what we talked about. Give us your thoughts. We'd love to see you there. And until next week, we'll talk to you then. Bye.